1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. This is Kristen Schrewer, your host for this week. You are listening to episode 26. What do architecture and birth have in common? For one, in both cases, you can design an experience. But in this case, it's this week's guest, Kim Holden. Kim was a founding principal of the world-renowned architecture firm SHOP, After more than 25 years of design and of cultivating and fostering the culture of the firm, Kim embarked on a new path as a doula. She started her own business, Doula by Design, where she brings her design expertise and business acumen to the birthing space. In today's episode, Kim talks about her decision to leave her 25-year career in architecture to follow her passion of supporting mothers in birth. She talks about the process of making this big change and how she had to remind herself, this is my one life. What do I want it to look like? Her new calling is to give mothers, their partners and families, the emotional and physical support and the safe space that is critical to having an empowered, loving birth and postpartum period. She discusses how we can take back birth the Frida mom ad that was rejected by the Oscars, and postpartum. There's so much to learn from Kim in today's episode, not only about birth, but about career changes and when to know it's time for a change. Enjoy my conversation with Kim. Welcome, Kim, to the Illuminate podcast. I'm so excited to have you here on the show with us today.
2: Uh, Thank you, Kristen. Thank you so much for for having me. It's a pleasure for me to be here.
1: Now, Kim, I learned about you because I recently read a Fast Company article that talked about you and your amazing career progression. So you began in architecture and worked as an executive for 25 years um, in the architecture field, right? That's right. So yes. tell me a little bit about what you were doing then and then we'll get to why Fast Company wrote this article about you.
2: Sure, sure. Um, so I um, I moved to New York in the early 90s to go to architecture school, get my master's, master's degree. And while I was in school, I met my future four business partners. And the The five of us ended up starting a firm together in the mid-90s. And I should say that um, it was two married couples, or two married couples to be, um, and a set of identical twins. So um, we sort of started off as a family business from the very beginning. But we came together because we had shared frustration, I guess, with the um, the models of architecture and architecture firms that existed. And we shared a, you know, a work ethic. And we also came from from very different backgrounds before we decided to study architecture so when we started our firm we kind of approached problem solving in five different ways um, we started the firm at the beginning of the digital technology revolution I guess yes um, and we saw an opportunity to use digital te- technology in design and architecture not only to help produce interesting design but to construct it so so that started in the mid-90s and you know that that was sort of my first baby in a way. Um, and we grew from five people to over 200 uh, from the time we started the firm until about 2012. And during those years, um, I had two children. I had a daughter in 2003 and I had a daughter in 2007. My, my births were incredibly empowering. I think helped to find who I am as a woman and as a professional. And the reason they were so positive uh, was really solely because of the people I had surrounding me for providing emotional support, telling me that I could do it, making me feel calm and confident, and, and like I had privacy, and making me feel like a superhero. Um, and after the birth of my first daughter, I was so kind of tra- transformed by the whole experience that I briefly um, considered going back to school and becoming a midwife. I. I said, I, I think I might be in the wrong profession. Um, and so I sort of went down that path very, very briefly And, and before I realized it, that I needed to kind of get a grip and return, you know, to what I had studied so hard for and, um, uh, you know, worked all of these long hours for all of these years for. And we, you know, the firm was doing well, um, we were gaining recognition, we started um, being able to choose our projects rather than really sort of chase after them. Most of our projects were in New York, but the firm continued to grow. Um, the culture of the firm is really important to us. It was important to us that um, we treat our employees well, which is sadly not always the case in architecture. It was important that everyone had health insurance um, and everyone got paid every month, which is also so not the norm. And, you know, we did that even in the months we, we didn't pay ourselves. So we just, that was sort of how we, you know, we thought this is a business first and it's design second, even though we want to produce amazing design, but honoring the person, honoring, um, family, families, um, and just respecting our employees, our employees was very important to us. So I think that set us apart also kind of culturally from other firms. And at the same time, we were doing really innovative work with 3d technology, et cetera, et cetera. So, So I went back to work um, and, you know, I really, it was a real struggle, the whole balance and everything that everyone talks about. It was really, really, I, I, postpartum was difficult for me. You know, I have been sort of, I think I was 36 when I had my first child, but you know, when you're, when you're 36 and you have your first child, you have an established life. And when a baby comes into it, into it, it's amazing and incredible, but you know, you're kind of, kind of left thinking, Oh my God, what happened to my life? And will I ever get it back? Mm -hmm. I can
1: relate. That was when I had my first baby too.
2: So you, you know you, you know you struggle with those feelings and you struggle with the logistics. You struggle with you know what is my relationship with my with my partner going to be now, and then you also struggle with feelings of guilt. Like I why am I having these feelings? Should I be? I mean I have this incredible being who, who you know I created and is completely dependent on me, and I struggled with the exhaustion. I mean, I remember saying to to myself, Oh, I'm going to be able to deal with the postpartum stuff because in architecture school, I I was completely sleep deprived. You know, we pull all these all nighters and the reality is that, you know, when you're up in graduate school, your time is really your own. When you have a baby and those first few weeks and months even your time is not your own. You are completely, um, your schedule is completely dictated and determined by this tiny little, little helpless creature. So that was really a struggle. Um, and at the time I lived in a, my husband and I lived in a fifth floor walk up in, um, (laughs) in a little neighborhood called Nolita. So, um, my second daughter arrived um, in the middle of 2007 and I had the same team for, for her as well. I had the same doula, uh, her name's Amy. Um, and she, is my mentor to this day. Um, I had the same midwife. My sister was there as well for the second birth and my husband was there very, very different birth, but same feelings, same feelings of positivity, um, empowerment. Um, and I, and I, you know, I thought this is incredible. I, you know, I wish that I was able to do something in my professional life that would enable me to help make women feel the way that I felt during my birth. Um, But this was right before the recession hit, and um, it was all hands on deck to, you know, within within the the span of um, three weeks, we lost 75% of our work. Mm -hmm. People were just in a panic, um, and they put projects on hold. So I really needed to focus on that. It was sort of, you know, this was my livelihood, um, and I just completely forgot about uh, my – potential path to midwifery so the firm we made it through the recession and um the firm started to grow again we had to do a couple rounds of layoffs and that was probably one of the most difficult things I'd, I'd had to do in terms of as be, being a professional um, and um anyway so we made it through and we came up better on the other side and we started landing projects again and we landed um our biggest project to date by far which was the Barclay Center in Brooklyn, which is the home of the Brooklyn Nets, and that really sort of propelled us, and the firm started grow. The firm's growth started becoming fast and furious. Uh, and as one of the five partners, I knew that one of the five of us needed to take over the manage a management role, um, because at the time it was sort of you know there really were not a lot of systems in place. We just sort of the growth was very organic. And it was we were sort of flying by the seat of our pants. So I took on that role, which also allowed me to have a more flexible schedule. I didn't have to be I didn't have to be on call for my clients 24-7. I did have to be on call for the firm. So I was dealing with a whole host of issues. So putting systems and operations in place to deal with the growth, um, but managing the culture of the firm and, and trying to evolve it in such a way that respected it, but also grew in the way that the firm that was growing. So I did that, and we you know, landed incredible projects. Um, we moved our office to the Woolworth Building, which is an iconic building here in New York. Mm-hmm. And um, just it, it was fast and furious and kind of crazy. Um, our, we had a monograph come out, um, and that was all really wonderful. Um, and then we got into sort of like the mid-2000s, I guess it's the teens. Um, and the pressures of the firm were very, very challenging, and they affected me personally, they affected my relationship with my husband.
1: And wait, I have to ask a question. Were you are were you one of the husband-wife partners, or were you one of the identical twin partners oh, of the firm?
2: Good, good question. So yes, I was one of the husband-wife. OK, so, so were...
1: your, your spouse and you are running this company together
2: together, along with another married couple and the identical twin of the husband. Oh, the the, other couple.
1: Fascinating. Okay, got it.
2: Yep. And and just to to complicate things even more, three of us had the same birthday, have the same (laughs) birthday. So that was, but um, so it was a lot and um, a lot of pressure. And so that really seeped into um, my personal life and into my marriage and um, ended up getting separated and um, for my husband in 2015, um, and ultimately divorced. And so that led to a lot of soul seeking for me. But I kept going back to in my mind, and it was, this was subconsciously, this was not something that I was cognizant of at the time. But I, because of how uh, the power that I felt during my birth, I really felt like I could survive anything, no matter what it was, you know, uh, any challenge. and. Even though I wasn't aware of that, I really think that that was behind me just like putting one foot in front of the other every day. I came to the realization that I wasn't really going to move on with my life unless I left the firm. And so uh, I left the firm and I gave myself a bit of a sabbatical. I went to Nepal. Um, one of the projects that I was running at shop, the the firm, was uh, a project to build schools for to rebuild schools that were damaged in the earthquake. That happened in April, 2015. And so I ran that project, but I had never been to Nepal. They subsequently asked me to be on the board. And so in the capacity as a board member, I was asked to go over just a couple of months after I left the firm, one of the co-founders, and I traveled with another woman. And the three of us went for almost three weeks um, we spent our days visiting the schools, visiting and uh, spending time at an orphanage that was the original mission of this organization. Called, it's called Kids of Kathmandu. And prior to going over, we set up some workshops for the young girls and young women at the orphanage about health and hygiene. They had no information, no access to information about menstruation, sex, general you know, hygiene, that kind of thing. So we set up um, workshops for them and really got to know the kids there. So the three of us, um, Jamie, Rachel and I, one of us was in our 50s, one was in our 40s, one was in our 30s. And we would have these very intense days and then in the evening we came together as friends and just talked about life. And we all sort of came at it from different points of view, different parts of our lives, different, you know. uh, And that was almost as kind of um, compelling as our days were. So I came back from that trip just kind of like, okay. It sounds kind of like
1: eat, pray, love.
2: Totally eat, pray, love. And it was in, you know, and and it was in a place that was like very eat, pray, love-ish, right? So, you know, um, we would go to these schools and they would do the ceremony with the, um, carnations and, um, they would sing to us and we would pray. And it was very eat, pray, love. Um, so I came back and I, I, I said to myself, I have this opportunity. I have an incredible opportunity to do something different with my life. Um, and, you know, in, in the months leading up to me leaving the firm, I was becoming increasingly frustrated with the state of politics, the state of women's issues, the state of healthcare just appalled by what was happening and feeling very helpless. And I was doing what I could. I was, you know, I was canvassing, I was marching, I was posting on Instagram and, trying to educate my daughters about what these issues were, but I really felt like I could be doing more. I knew that I was never going to be the leader of a political movement. That's just not who I am. But I kept saying to myself, there's got to be something that I can do. And so my the criteria for what I w- was going to do next included being able to have some sort of an impact on those issues that were important to me, having some degree of flexibility in my life because having this, time the sabbatical quote unquote and being able to be present for my daughters was huge and so important and you know we had all struggled a little bit through the divorce and through you know the, the family structure changing it was very hard on everybody um but being able to be here and be present for them uh, in a way that i hadn't before was just so important and i saw the positive impact and benefits almost immediately um You know, and people say, I remember when I had young kids, I had friends who had teenagers and they said to me, and I said, you know, I really need to be home with my girls. I wish I could be home more. And they said, totally understand that. But honestly, the time when you really need to be home with them is when they're preteens and teens. And at the time I just, I didn't even, I was like, wait, what are you talking about? But it's very true. And it's, uh, it's a different kind of need that they have when they're older, Mm -hmm. um, it's more kind of emotional, it's communi- communication, it's just... So anyway, um, that was very important to me. And I kept saying to myself, I'm going to know when I know what this thing is. And I went down this path of meeting with many people, friends, colleagues, networking in the architecture and design world, because I just assumed that it would be something in that, in that world. But nothing was really exciting me. Oh, oh, and sorry, my other criteria was that I wanted to have my own business again. After having my own business for, you know, 25 years... I just couldn't conceive of going to work for someone else. So that that once I realized that it, I it was very freeing. And um, but again, I didn't I didn't know what it was going to be. So um, I ended up going to Maine, where my family lives, and spending time with them, spending a lot of time just reflecting. I started meditating. You know, it really. <laughs> I just it sounds very like midlife crisis, and I guess in a way it was. But yeah, I um, I was getting ready to come back to New York. And literally a light bulb went off in my head and I said to myself, "Wait a second, what about that midwifery thing? What about that? Um, there's no way I'm going back to school at this point in my life, but what about a doula? What I could what, what does that look like? So I, I started googling and I, I realized that this is what I'm gonna do. Um, I saw a lot of opportunity in the role of Doula. I saw a lot of, a lot of opportunity to expand the notion of what a doula could do and the services a doula could provide. And maybe most importantly, I saw that it could be a platform for greater advocacy at some point. Advocacy for women, and then using my kind of design background to perhaps one day redesign birth environments and redesign the flow of a labor and delivery ward, ward. redesign the redesign an actual labor and delivery room. You know, a labor and delivery room now is pretty much designed the way any sort of hospital room is, whether you're going in for heart surgery or you have a gallbladder out or you're being treated for cancer, the rooms are basically the same. And there's something fundamentally wrong with that because um, a pregnant slash laboring person is not sick. She's healthy, very healthy. She has a human being inside of her who uh, with a normal or with pregnancy is also healthy. So the environment should look very different. Um, and that was very appealing to me. So I contacted the woman who was my doula, uh, Amy, and I told her my idea and she thought I was crazy. She's like, wait, you're an architect, what do you do? She's like, you know, this means, you know, you have to get up in the middle of the night, you have to do this, that, and the other thing. And she's like, but I will support you. Um, So that started me down a path of trying to figure out, there are different paths to becoming a doula. Um, So I, I was able to investigate those and I just started reading as much as I could, reaching out to people to understand what this meant. Um, and at the same time, I sort of parallel track that with coming up with a name, thinking of how to brand it, how would I get clients setting up the business? Because for me, that was very, very important. Whatever venture I was going to do and create, it had to be a business first, you know, so I, you know, I had and that's, got and business it's intuitive first. for you, right? I mean, yes, that's... absolutely. Um, very intuitive. So that was sort of a no brainer, but very important. Um, and, um, yeah, so I did that. And then January of 2019, so just a year ago, that's when I went live. I went live with my website that I did myself. (laughs) And um, it's a beautiful website. So you've done well. Thank you, thank you. It was really, it was fun to do. Um, My daughters helped me with it because they're much more tech savvy than I am. But so then I went live, and then I focused on just continuing to gain knowledge, networking with other dualists and other people in the birth community because having that network is very important and then figuring out how to get clients. So I joined a couple of birth collectives, one of which um, does speed dating once a month for um, prospective parents, prospective clients who would like to meet a doula. And so we all kind of meet and the prospective clients have 10 minutes with each doula. That was a great way for me to kind of sort of really dive in and also hone my pitch a little bit and really understand what set me apart and who I was, and what was I offering? Um, so it took about five of those before I landed my first client from the collective. Prior to that, uh, I had two people who I knew in my life. One is, was a former work colleague who allowed me to kind of have them be guinea pigs for me. And um, they were incredible and they allowed me into their lives and their, you know, kind of birth space and allowed me to be there for them. And I will always be incredibly grateful, you know, as a very green doula, someone who had never done this before. Um, but But I realized that my own births, as well as all of my life experience, my experience being a mom, my experience going, you know, being married and being in a relationship and then coming out of that relationship, and my experience as an architect and managing everything that an architect manages, whether it's a design problem or a management problem, Um, I dealt with all sorts of issues, uh, managing a firm of that size. And it really, it was, I think it was very, very helpful to give me perspective on, you know, you have to be calm, you have to be able to read a room, whether it's a meeting or whether it's a disgruntled employee or someone who's struggling with a certain issue professionally or personally. Um, I found that a lot of young women would come to me to talk about work and life. And I really enjoyed that. So a lot of those skills uh, I saw could translate to, to being a doula. um, And that's exactly what has happened. So that's kind of the long answer to your question. Amazing.
1: Amazing how it all came together. Okay. So I have a bunch of questions for you. Yes. Okay. So let's go back to that point in your architecture firm where things were high stress and were you realized that it was probably time for you to take a step back. How did you get to that point? And what advice do you have for somebody who may be in a situation like that where they're realizing that maybe things are not lining up um, with their work and life and, and this step back needs to happen?
2: It's a really great question. Um, first, I want to say it was terrifying. It was terrifying when it came to the realization that I – think that I needed to make a major, major change, not only in my personal life, but in my professional life. So basically that meant everything that I knew and was familiar to me had to change. Yeah. But what, but what I think I went back to is I, I realized that I lost who I was as a person. Truly. I, I put everything into the firm and everything into being a mom. And I, I, I wasn't doing the things that I really love to do. I wasn't seeing my friends as often as I would like. I wasn't really exercising as much as I should have. I had forgotten what was important to me. And I had sort of suppressed those things in the service of, well, I need to do that in order for the firm to be successful. I need to do that in order to be a good mom. And I think it wasn't until like the walls were crumbling that I was like, okay, wait a second. I really need some perspective on this. Who am I as a person and what is important to me? And how can I remember a time when I was able to have a clearer perspective on all of this? So there was a lot of self-reflection, and I think reaching out to friends. And I have I have two and a half sisters. My sisters were so supportive. Um, my family. My mom, my stepdad, my dad. When you say two and a half sisters. Yes. Yeah, so I have, uh, I found out um, a few years ago that I have an older half sister. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And she's amazing. And it's all worked out incredibly well. And, you know, these things can go off the rails. Sure. As you can imagine. <laughs> but, but very lucky. So so she came into my life a couple of years before things started to really get uh, crazy. Um, and so all of my sisters and my family just were very, very supportive was a lot of being vulnerable and, um, realizing that I didn't have to be a t- the tough person all the time. I just, I was, I had to be so tough. I really felt like I had to put on my armor in order to get through this, but I also needed to be vulnerable to the people who I trusted and the people I was close to. Um, and then I had people say to me, did you ever think that you could create this firm? When it started with the five of you, did you ever think that you could, you know, meet with the Obamas. We were on the short list for the presidential library. We were in the final three. We got to meet the Obamas. People would say to me, look at what you've accomplished. You can accomplish anything. If you've done this, you can accomplish anything. So then then I started just reflecting back to all of the things that I was able to do and all of the struggles that I have had and told myself, you made it through. You're going to be able to do this. And you have one life to live. Oh, sorry. The other thing is that I had a couple of people close to me pass away in during that time. And that I, I've been very lucky in my life that I have not experienced a lot of loss. So those two people passing away had a huge impact on me. Um, and the timing, it happened you know, right at the time that I was dealing with all of these challenges. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is it. Like, I This is my one life. What do I want it to look like? And so it was all of all of these things coming together. And there was so much, Kristen, it was so overwhelming at times that I didn't know which way to look or where to start first. And I don't know why this analogy came into my mind. I think it was actually in therapy. And I said to the therapist, I said, you know what I feel like right now? I feel like when you go into your jewelry box and you want to get a necklace out, but all the necklaces are tangled. They're in a ball. And you don't know how to start with untangling the ball. You just have to get a couple of like, maybe a couple of little pins and you have to start pulling them apart one at a time, very slowly and very patiently. And then you'll you'll untangle one, you put it to the side and you lay it down in a very organized way. And then you take out the next one, you untangle it and you lay it. Knowing that you're going to get through it, it's just a very slow process and you have to peel back and untangle each thing One at a time, and as you untangle, it may help untangle a little bit of the other thing. So that was the analogy that was in my head, Mm, and I just, I just kept going with it. And I, you know, as a mom, like you have your kids come to you. My girls come to me all the time. They're like, "Mommy, can you untangle this necklace?" (laughs) And I start to sweat, and then I'm like, "Yes, I can do that. I can, you know, do." So it, um, but it was really, really, really scary. And there were times that I didn't think I was going to be able to do it, but I didn't have a choice. I, I just, I was like, "This is it." And once I made my mind up, I was like. You owned your decision. Yeah. Yep. Was your
1: husband at the time part of any of these conversations or influential in any of this?
2: No. Okay. I was very, um, this was all me, Mm -hmm. um, because it had to be, um, because the divorce and the life and the work stuff were happening simultaneously. Okay. So you know, we had conversations about the girls, and that was our most important thing, you know, that the girls were um, loved and taken care of, and that they, they knew that their parents loved you. But beyond that, um, that was really the only, those were the only conversations that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, this was all me, my process of self-discovery. And, uh, and this is your one life. I love that. Yeah. And again, like, you know, I hear myself say this, and some of it sounds so cliche, and until you actually go through it and you live it yourself, you, you can't imagine. Like it's like I get it now. I, I I I get it, and it's very 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 liberating. It's scary at first, but then it is so liberating. Um, and I just <laughs> I can't even. Yeah. Um, so if there's anyone out there who's kind of suppressing who they are and um, doing something because they think they should be doing it, or doing it because other people tell them they should, or they feel that this looks better on paper, or you know whatever it is. I would really encourage you to ask yourself, what am I suppressing? Why am I having these thoughts? Why am I not doing what I really want to do? Why am I not saying the things I really mean? And that sort of that's that can really allow you to just be true to yourself. Just be true to yourself. Yeah. You know? And um, that not only affects you positively, but all the people around you. Yeah.
0: Well, Hey there everybody, this is Lindsay Hine, one of your co-hosts. And today I want to thank a sponsor for this podcast episode. And that is Lola. Lola is a female founded feminine care brand offering high quality period and sexual wellness products made with natural ingredients. Lola's tampons, pads, liners, and cleansing wipes are made with 100% organic cotton, no toxins, dyes, or synthetic fibers. It's never been easier to try Lola and switch to natural period products. Lola offers two trial sets featuring a mix of assortment of period products made with 100% organic cotton, for just $5. I have had such great success using their products. What I love most is that they have a subscription-based model and when that time of the month comes around every month, I know that I'm gonna be prepared and ready and don't have to make a quick run to the store because I know that my products are making their way to my home on their own. Super convenient. Lola believes in total ingredient transparency. Did you know the FDA doesn't require brands to disclose a comprehensive list of ingredients in their feminine care products? So most of them don't. That's why big brands often use disclaimers like may contain on their boxes. Lola thinks women deserve to know exactly what they're putting into their bodies. So they list every ingredient on the box. Lola makes your period a little bit easier. Subscriptions are customizable so you can choose your mix of products and absorbencies down to the exact number of lights and supers in a box of tampons. It's easy to edit your order, change your delivery frequency, skip a month or cancel your subscription at any time. Lola is making an impact as well. Every time you use Lola, you're supporting a brand that gives back to women in need. To date, Lola has donated over 2 million period products and counting through their charity partner. I support the girls. It's never been easier to try Lola. To get started with a trial set today, when you purchase a trial set, you'll be auto subscribed to full boxes of both products starting with the following month. Lola will send you a reminder email before your subscription officially starts. It's a risk-free way to try the product before making a monthly commitment. It's easy to customize the assortment of your tampons in your subscription, skip a month or cancel at any time. No risk all reward. So get 30% off your $5 trial set today. Visit mylola.com and enter illuminate to redeem your offer. Again, you're going to get 30% off your $5 trial set today when you visit mylola.com and enter illuminate to redeem this offer. All right. Thank you Lola for supporting this episode of the podcast and you all enjoy the rest of this episode.
1: So when you moved into your doula career, you, Mm -hmm. you know, you said you ultimately were driven by this platform for greater advocacy. Tell me, talk to me a little bit about what is that platform? What are you advocating for? What's, what have you seen in, in this work that you've embarked on?
2: Mm, Great question. Um, For me, what really led this me to this work in particular was that well, two things, I think being a designer, I'm fascinated by anatomy and physiology of a woman's body and of birth. And I truly believe, I know that a woman's body is designed to give birth, but all many, I don't want to say all many of the signs that a woman's given, whether it's in social media, on TV, from their doctor, from a hospital, from other women, is that birth is something to be afraid of. Birth is scary. Birth is something that you need a lot of help to do. Even the nomenclature, even when you are you you say um, that your doctor is going to deliver your baby, no, you are going to birth your baby. That nomenclature saying it's going to be delivered suggests that someone else is doing the work. So oh, there are I all like these that. sort of right? So yeah. there's all these sort of little things that erode confidence and make women. I'm using women, um, and I don't want to be non-inclusive. Um, I should probably be saying birthing people. But for the purposes of this interview, I'm just I'm just going to say um, women feel that there are so many changes that can happen that can allow women to take back birth. Women have been birthing forever. And it wasn't until really the 40s that birth became very medicalized, and now here we are, all of these years later. And I, hospitals, doctors, the whole hospital system, the medical system, and the way it's profit-driven and you know, fear, fire fear of liability-driven—is completely at odds with what a woman needs when she is in labor, when she's pregnant, when she's in labor, and when she's given birth, or giving birth. I think that what women need to labor and birth in their own time is they need to feel safe. They need to feel relaxed and calm. They need to feel like they have privacy and they need to feel supported. And all of those things are completely connected to hormones, specifically the hormones of birth, like oxytocin. So for instance, if you're afraid your fight, your your fight or flight reflexes are going to kick in, and when those reflexes and those hormones kick in, that can stall labor. Hmm. If you're feeling calm and loved and supported and relaxed, the good hormones will kick in. The oxytocin will kick in, and oxytocin is the hormone of labor progression. So, if you are laboring at home and you're doing great and you've got food to drink, food to eat, and you can drink all you want. You can hydrate. You're in a comfortable environment. You're wearing your own clothes. You can move around freely. You're feeling calm and confident. You decide to, it's time to go to the hospital. From the second you walk in the doors and you're, you're going to triage, you're asked to put on the hospital Johnny, you feel afraid. You feel anxious, typically, and your agency is starting to be taken away, whether you realize it or not and all of these things start to happen to you and it can be very scary so by the time you're transferred to a labor and delivery room and you've got potentially all sorts of wires coming out of you and you've got these monitors on you and if you roll over to your side the monitor will slip off and suddenly all these the, the beeping is going on and the nurses are running in and suddenly these things are happening to you you're not you feel as though you've lost control of your birth. And then you just sort of say, well, the hospital must know best. The doctors must know best. And oftentimes that's true. But in a normal low risk pregnancy, if a woman is allowed to labor on her own and allowed to move around and allowed to feel supported and allowed to try all sorts of different comfort techniques and movement techniques, and if she's respected in that and respected, um, if her labor is respected, the timeline is respected, her body is respected, then I believe that she will be able to do this on her own with minimal intervention. That said, there are many, many different ways to give birth. And my role as a doula is not to lead a, a woman or a birthing person in any particular direction. My role is to to support their choices without any sort of judgment whatsoever. And give them information and knowledge that they need to make informed choices about their birth. So, I am there in a support role. I am there to help uh, women and their partners advocate for themselves in birth. I'm not there to speak on their behalf. I'm there to help them help them do that um, and understand what informed consent is. Understand that when they're a patient at the hospital, anyone who touches them, anything who anybody who uh, wants to do anything to them or their body, they need to get, they need to explain what the procedure is. They need to explain what benefits and risks are. And that's our right as a patient. Um, and I tell my clients that they should be themselves as a client in the hospital, not as a sick patient, but as a client and someone who has certain rights and can ask for certain things and not feel that that is, um, something that they can't do.
1: You were talking about redesigning the birth experience or birth environment. What is that ideal design and what have, what progress have you made, you know, with your clients or with the hospitals that you're working in to get to some of that redesign?
2: So right now I'm still sort of building the foundations. I'm still trying to understand and navigate hospitals, hospital environments, understand what the interventions are, what the procedures are. Why some of these things are necessary, why they may not be. So, and I'm looking at it at a variety of scales. I'm looking at it at the scale of my client. And in that moment, when my client is in labor, what can I do? Well, I can create a safe space for that person based on what I know about her. So, you know, would she like the lights low? Suggesting they bring a playlist, providing earplugs so she can, you know, close out all the the beeping and annoying sounds. What kind of uh, um, essential oils might she like? What kind of comforting touch does she like? Are there things she'd like to bring from home that she can put up in the hospital room? What can we do to transform that hospital room to make it feel less clinical, less institutional, more like home? So we talk about those things um, about how I can transform that, help them transform their room. Um, And then I come in and I have battery operated candles and um, it just sort of it really changes the feeling in the room so much so that oftentimes I have doctors or nurses come in and they, you can see they visibly take a deep breath and say, Oh, this is so lovely. <laughs> you know, this is so calming. It feels so calm. And it really makes a difference. It really makes a difference. Some clients like to bring um, a diffuser with them so that they can um, diffuse you know, lavender oil or whatever they like, whatever makes them feel calm. So, so there's, so at that level, of the level of the client and labor, that's kind of what I do now. Then I'm really looking at what is necessary during birth. And I look at all the kind of birth tools and all the technology and all the equipment. And for starters, you have the monitor. That's two belts, one to measure contractions and one to monitor the baby's heartbeat. These things look like they were designed in the 50s and they probably were. They haven't really changed much, which to me is absolutely crazy that in this day and age of technology and invention, we can't come up with a better design for that so that a woman can be mobile and move around without worrying about losing the baby's heartbeat off on the monitor, right? If you, you like I was sure. saying before, if you, right, if you shift around that that belt slips off your your big belly and the nurses come in and you know that creates stress in between the the sounds of the beeping and the nurses coming in and all the interruption that can create anxiety that alone can slow down labor so hmm. you know why don't we have better equipment why don't we have equipment that allows a woman to be mobile and not tethered right so so that's just kind of one small example there are wireless monitors in some hospitals but oftentimes they're not working and sometimes they only have you know one on the whole labor and delivery floor. And if you don't get that particular room, you don't get the wireless monitor. Um, right. Why aren't we doing more to promote those kinds of things? And then I look at it at the scale of the room itself. I am traveling to Europe in March. And one of the things I'm going to do is visit, I'm hoping to visit birth centers there. Um, I've only seen images online to this point, but, um, There are birthing centers in Denmark, for instance, where you walk in, it doesn't look like a hospital room. It looks like a yoga studio. You have the silks hanging from the ceiling, um, birth balls, there's no bed in sight. That's all hidden away. There are comfy sofas, there are exercise balls, Pilates looking equipment, yoga mats, that kind of thing. There's a a table and chairs for family to sit. There's like a a mini kitchen that is what i would love to see more of in this country but in that i have to understand more about what's driving these decisions what's driving you know well i know i know that's you know financial so financial decisions the 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 hospital can generate a lot more revenue if they have a patient who orders who asks for an epidural they can charge for that versus a patient who just wants nitrous oxide so nitrous oxide. There's a, there are only two hospitals in New York City, in Manhattan, that offer nitrous oxide. And why is that? The only thing I can think of is because they can't charge as much. And when someone is saying, "I need pain relief," "I need pain relief," the hospital is more incentivized to push, to strongly encourage a, an epidural. Um, so that's really that's those two things are at odds. And I think until women demand more for their birth experience. I, I think the change is going to be challenging. I think there's got to be some kind of a groundswell. Um, and honestly, I think women don't really know that they have these options. I think that they don't really know that they have power in this. They don't, they don't realize or they've forgotten that they need to be the boss of their own birth. And there's nothing wrong with their bodies. The pain of labor is normal, Right. The pain of labor is normal and it's your the biggest muscle in your body it's your uterus bringing that baby down and that's why it's painful but there are ways to manage it and there are ways to look at it and understand that this is not the pain that you get when you break an arm this is not the pain you get you know when you're in a car accident or whatever that's a very different kind of thing and i wish there was another word for that pain because pain is scary mm-hmm. and when you think about so that it's all kind of it has to do with an attitude surrounding Birth and women's bodies, and just talking about more of these issues. And I haven't even gotten into the lack of postpartum care and support. And that's a whole, that's a huge issue um, that, you know, is another thing that I'm trying to address. But in terms of design, I think until women demand it or until hospitals can see the benefits that translate to numbers of changing the design of some of these things, whether it's the birthing equipment. Or the birthing environment, there's not that there there isn't that much incentive for them to do anything about it. And if women are just kind of falling in line because they think they don't have any other options, then it, it it's going to be difficult. Um. Yeah. So, yeah, the more people who can talk about this, the more people. Anytime uh, I have a client who says, well, I'm I'm going I'm birthing at um, Lenox Hill Hospital, for instance. Um, I tell them, well, you know, they, 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 they don't offer nitrous oxide and if that's something they're in, that you're interested in, you should talk to your care provider because the more women who ask for nitrous oxide, the more likely it is that these other hospitals will introduce mm-hmm. it, you know? Yeah.
1: So. No, I, I mean, I think that that's powerful and how do you advocate for your own health rights and mm-hmm. care and mm-hmm. and how do you create a movement out of that, right? You need more voices. Like, not just one. We need voice. more voices.
2: Yeah. and this is not to say that um, you know we are lucky that we live in a in a modern age where Absolutely. medical is. I mean, there are and many entries
1: where yes, if yes. you need, I needed medical intervention for the birth of my son, and we tried all the options, and so I'm grateful that we that I live in a place where that was that was available to me.
2: Absolutely, and and if a client came to me and said. I I would like to have a scheduled C-section, and I would say, well, let's talk about that. Tell me, you know, how you reached that conclusion, and are there specific reasons? And I am supportive of that decision, um, but also want my client to have the knowledge that she deserves to have about that. So, yes, we are incredibly, incredibly lucky um, to – to live in this country and to have access to modern medical care. And so I don't, I don't want that to be overlooked and I'm not advocating for any particular particular kind of birth. What I'm advocating for is advocacy and education really around all of this, Mm -hmm. um, to give it a fair, to give it a fair shot and really to take it, to take it back.
1: Yeah. So I want to talk just for a minute about the postpartum support. So there was, Mm -hmm. I watched a video today from an article off from Washington post of an ad from a company called Frida, who Mm -hmm. I guess the ad got rejected by the Oscars. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, I don't know if you've seen the, seen the ad, but it's uh, a woman postpartum. She's got, you know, the large pad on the hospital underwear. She's still bleeding. Her baby's crying. She's sleep deprived. And and it's real. I mean, I watched the video and I was like having these flashbacks, right, of
2: Mm -hmm, those mm -hmm. first
1: few weeks. And, you know, so they, so this is now, uh, has gone viral, right, that this ad wasn't shown on as part of the Oscars and, Mm. um, but it's really real and raw. And what kind of, you know, what is your stance on the lack of postpartum support What are you, what are you moving forward around this? How do you support your clients?
2: So I did, I did see that commercial and I actually reposted it to my Instagram. Okay. Um, And I'll post it in our show
1: notes as well so that everybody reading can, or listening, excuse me,
2: can see this. And I got emotional. I got kind of teary because it was so raw and so real. And that is real. And then the next day I saw that it had hit the Washington Post and I saw that it uh, it was on Vox and I saw, and I said, this is great. This is what needs to be happening. And in a way, you know, this is the next best thing, you know, that the Oscars refused to show it. But now everyone's talking about the fact that the Oscars refused to show it. And here's the, here's the ad. It's, it's raising awareness about the fact that postpartum is very, very challenging. And this is what it looks like. You know, it doesn't look like the, the mom oftentimes, you know, holding her baby glowing and looking fantastic, the images that we see on social media. Um, but it is hard. So I think
1: mm-hmm.
2: managing expectations about what the post postpartum period looks like is really important. And that's something that I do with my birth doula clients is we in our in our second visit, we talk about what is your postpartum care plan look like? And um, who who will be here to support you? And here are things that you should perhaps expect, uh, after the baby comes. And, um, you know, your, your uterus is shrinking from the, uh, you know, the size of a watermelon to its normal size. And so when that happens, there's going to be a lot of bleeding and you're going to be exhausted. Um, it's really, really hard. I, I also tell my, I suggest to my clients that you should think of a, make a list now of tasks that Friends and family can do when they when they come over, because everyone needs to be put to work, right? You are not entertaining anybody. Anyone who walks into the apartment should come in with food, something to drink, and then when they say, "What can I do to help?" So you don't have to think about it. You just say, "Well, there's a list on the fridge. Head over to the fridge, pick anything on the list, and that would be helpful." And I say, "It is right," because you don't even you're like, "I don't know. I don't know what's going to be helpful. I don't know. I'll just do it myself." You know, you can imagine. Um, But I I I really try to emphasize to the new to the mom to be to the parents to be that the mom's job, sole job after the baby is born is to heal and to nourish her baby. That's it. Everything else should be done by other people. And in other cultures, whether it's the it, the first 40 days, sometimes even 100 days called the fourth trimester often um, family and friends come in and the woman just sort of stays in bed, feeding her child, being fed, um, and just being taken care of because when you think about what's actually happened that you have grown another human being and that human being has come out of your body, whether it's vaginally or or through a C-section, which is major surgery, there is a ton of healing to do and you need to be taken care of and you don't get a good start there. I think there can be negative repercussions throughout your life throughout the baby's life, Uh, similar to birth. I think whatever experience you have in birth, that will stick with you, whether it's positive or negative. And I believe that the postpartum period is the same way. And so I think we owe it to ourselves as a society to be more supportive of families with newborns um, and in that postpartum period, because I think all of society will benefit if that period is a period that is honored and the new parents are supported in, in every way, and that's from someone making soup to having increased family leave and just being more respectful. I'm so I'm so tired of, of quote having a family be the exception, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it seems like you know people sneaking around, like I've got to go to my 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 ki- I really want to go to my kids you know concert and having to maybe fib about it or feeling guilty about it. This is life. This is life and life is messy. And so I there they're just I wish there was more respect for that and acknowledgement, just acknowledgement. Um, you know, and not having to pretend that you're not a mom when you're at work and then when you're home pretending that you don't have a job. So it's really, really, really challenging. And so I think the more people who talk about it, the more awareness through the Frida ad or whatever else. I think that's a really great way to lay the, the framework for this you know, sea change with regard to um, birth and postpartum issues.
1: Yeah. And then there's, you know, the whole other layer of postpartum related to mental health. And mm. so all of those factors play up into that and that postpartum depression is so real. It affects so many people and we, you know we as a society it's quiet right it's not talked mm-hmm.
2: about we have to change that absolutely we absolutely have to change it i mean it's there's no reason why we can't yeah. you know so when yeah. you were
1: talking about so i am due in mid march with my seconds and i was saying i was actually saying to my husband recently I'm going to have a very different birth with this second baby because I actually have placenta previa. So they, Mm. I do have to schedule a C-section, but I was saying to my husband, my birth of our son is such this vivid memory. And there were some complications in there and it was very, it was a very long labor and delivery or a labor and birth. I don't want to say delivery. I love the term birth. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't want to forget those that like there were so many moments, right? And it's so vivid mm-hmm. now. And surely in time, I'll forget some of the vividness of it. But you want to kind of capture that. And so, you know, I was thinking that this one's going to be so different. So how do I, you know, capture that as well and and keep those memories kind of locked up? And and you're right; it's vivid whether it's positive or negative. It's mm-hmm. this transformative experience.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, congratulations on your pregnancy. That's so, that's so exciting. That's so exciting. Yeah. Well, we are at the end
1: of our time together and I could talk to you forever about this, uh, (laughs) but I want to just ask you, we have a couple end of podcast questions that um, I want to ask you. So obviously our podcast is called the Illuminate Podcast. And so Mm -hmm. we are talking to people who are illuminating and you are certainly doing that. Who is somebody in your life or somebody that you know of um, that you think is, is an illuminator?
2: I would have to say that each time I am with, I'm supporting a woman in labor, I am completely awed <laughs> by her power. Hmm. Uh, and it never wears off. Uh, I mean, the, the novelty will never wear off. Um, I am just the strength, the power, the determination, I, I, I would have to say, I would have to say that. And it's an honor for me to be able to witness that again and again. And I'm, it's, it's just never, it's, it's never going to cease to amaze me. It's um yeah. That's great. I love that. Um, Do you have a book recommendation? All of the books I'm reading now are doula related. I- <laughs> hey, maybe so- there's a
1: good book for somebody who's, you know, so, going to deliver a baby or, you know, maybe they want to pursue a career as a doula.
2: So there are a couple that are sort of my, the ones I'm, I'm I've recently read or reading now that I think are amazing and that anyone who uh, is pregnant should look into. Um, and I just went to a workshop for this one, her, um, the name is your birth plan and it's a guide to navigating all of your choices in childbirth. And the author's name is um, Megan Davidson. And Uh, she covers all different types of births, questions to ask, how to choose a a care provider, how to choose a a hospital. Everything and anything is in this book. And you can read it, you know, sort of in one sitting or you can sort of pick and choose like a la carte. But she has been through uh, birth herself and has supported hundreds of women in New York. So that was That's a great book. And the other one is um, it's called Nurture by Erica Cohen. And it's called A Modern Guide to Pregnancy, Birth, Early Motherhood, and Trusting Yourself and Your Body. Um, That's a big thing for me, you know, learning to trust your body when so many factors and forces in society tell you not to or send signals that that you shouldn't trust Mm -hmm. your body or that Mm -hmm. there's something wrong with it. So that's a great great book, too. And then there's one other one that um, it's called Babies Are Not Pizzas they are born not delivered. So that's, so me saying, you know, birthing a baby not being delivered, that that also comes from that book. And that's by Rebecca Decker. Um, she founded Evidence Based Birth, which is an incredible website um, with evidence based information for all things birth. That is um, a great resource for parents and professionals. So yeah, so those are the books I'm reading now. I also just got an Instapot from one of my first clients. So Oh my so I've gosh. been reading the Instapot cookbook. <laughs> okay. So yeah.
1: that's a perfect lead into our the next question. So this <laughs> podcast was started out of a supper club. And so we love to eat. All the hosts are part of a supper club. And so we're asked, we asked our guests if they have a recipe that they love. Maybe you have something you've just tried in your Instapot that we can share with our listeners.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the meal in one. I've always been a big fan of the meal in one. So the Instapot appeals to me, but, um, I like, I, I I love making soups and have soup, soup and salad. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I like it for a variety of reasons, but having two teenagers, who have a lot of different schedules and it's, it's easy to sort of set it out and then we can sort of sit down and have a, a quick meal together. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it can mostly be done in advance. Like I just made a, like a turkey soup or or a chili. And then, um, actually I have the salad that I made last night, which is a spinach on dive hearts of palm chives with a shallot, honey mustard dressing. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah, it's really, it's great. Um, and yeah, last Sunday served it with a uh, turkey soup that I made in the Instapot. Love <laughs> it.
1: And then my last question for you, Kim, is what is
2: your message for the world? Oh, my, my message for the world is that we need to take back, birthing people need to take back birth. We're designed to do this. And um, we need to educate ourselves more and share our knowledge and not be shy about it and just keep talking keep talking keep listening keep sharing we need to be the boss bosses of our own births
1: Kim thank you so much for your insights about the birth experience your insights on your eat pray love experience and on how to make big change as somebody who is going to be having a baby in a few weeks I learned a lot from you about the birthing experience, and I already feel more empowered going into my birth experience thanks to this conversation. If you love today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at The Illuminate Podcast. You can follow Kim Doula by Design on Instagram at Doula X Design. Have a wonderful week and thanks for illuminating with us.